There is a movement promoting our stories, and many of us grew up with a strong craving for images we can relate to. Production teams, writers, creative heads have come together to tell stories, and this podcast is their voice. The themes covered are very relevant to the black community and anyone concerned by the social and racial injustices that are in place to stifle this voice. The Pan-African voice is not easily heard, and here we talk about our movies, that film or doc which you heard about but didn't get to see. What was the story? Where can I watch it? It now has a voice. Tune in. We walk you through these stories and interview the filmmakers. Welcome, Karibu Sana. I'm here today for another episode of the Pan-African Film Podcast. And today we're hosting Tamara Dawit. Welcome, Tamara. It's really, really good to see you. I was just telling you how I was thoroughly moved by your documentary. You are the director, writer, and I guess general creator of Finding Sally, correct? Um, feel free to correct me as I, <laughs> as I go on um, and just recap really briefly in my words what you know the film was about. So Finding Sally is about a young woman who is from an upper class family. And the story is about, well, it's retelling how she transitions from her, you know, rather privileged life to becoming a communist rebel in Ethiopia. I think what really amazed me the most was that the whole film, it was shot in Ethiopia entirely, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so this is based 40 years later because uh, during her time with the EPRP, she's forced to go undercover as she gets on the hit list of, you know, the new communist regime. And 40 years later, you trace back what kind of drove her to to that and how it all happened. So my first question is, how long did it take you to put it all together? Oh, wow. Well, first of all, thank you for, for making time to chat with me. I first found out about Sally in 2010, and the film came out in 2020. So it was a 10-year journey from finding out about Sally, that, that she existed, and me sort of trying to unpack that within my family and realizing that the reasons my, my family didn't tell me about Sally are, are systemic in Ethiopian Eritrean culture of hiding things. Um pushing down pain, pushing down things that are difficult or uncomfortable to to deal with. So as much as the film is about what happened to my family and about what happened after the revolution in Ethiopia, it's also really just about this culture of silence and how that has long-term impacts on, on the country and me really wanting to get people to try to feel comfortable to talk about some of these things because I think when we critically look at issues in our families, in our communities, in society, that's part of the growth that's often needed to to move forward. Wow, yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I'm part Ethiopian, so I totally understand. But to be fair, and as is appropriate for this platform, I feel it's something that's shared among various African cultures, probably not just Ethiopia. So very, very true for sure. And in that process, which one would you say has been the most like challenging aspect for you? Um, I think, you know, as always with films, the most challenging aspect is finding the money. Because, you know, films are expensive and 
That's that's definitely challenging. I mean, you know, in, in your opening, you mentioned that I'm the writer director. I'm actually also the producer, okay. even though I'm not really credited as the producer. My production company is credited as the producer. And, you know, that's because of this. This film was financed in Canada and there's a lot of systemic racism in the Canadian financing structures for film and television, which means that, you know, for black and indigenous and other racialized folks who are trying to make films often we have to pass that IP to a white company because those are the companies that the funders and the broadcasters and, you know, all the other people feel more comfortable working with. Mm -hmm. So that was probably the thing that I wasted the most time on was Mm -hmm. doing all the things I had been taught to do in terms of how to finance a film. And then no one wanted to work with me because they wanted to work with a nice middle-aged white man or, you know, whatever, and realizing that, okay, this isn't going to work. So I have to go and find one of these white people. And that also then um, brings with it other levels of difficulties and challenges in terms of, you know, authorship and who is really controlling the plans and the business and the decision-making of the film. Um, I think, you know, if you look at the statistics in Canada, it takes black filmmakers a decade to make a film. Right. And I have peers who in that same 10 year period put out three or four films. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. that for me was the biggest challenge. Um, and that's why I spend a lot of my time now working on, on racial equity issues in the screen sector. That's amazing uh, because it is it is an issue. And I'm so happy you brought this up. These are just the things that I'm personally most passionate about, you know, as a colored female producer myself. I obviously did not realize and it's good to communicate and share in the sense that I'm out here in the East Coast, in the state. You know, I've done work back in Kenya as well. And um, just realizing just how global the issue is for me, is just an affirmation of how wrong it is. So, and that more and more people should really speak up about it. Um, so I'm glad to hear that that's was it something that you're still pursuing after the film. I felt that in the documentary, you really had an effective way of using a personal relationship to trace, you know, an important part of our history, you know, based on like what you found out as you were researching your aunt, how would you describe her in, say, three words? And can you personally relate to her experience? Um, How would I describe her, first of all? I think everyone describes her as being someone who was just very fun, very, like, warm and happy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's already three words. So there's that There's that aspect. She, I think she was someone who was also, like, determined and committed, which is why she was a part of this movement. And I think the last bucket is that she was also really brave, Because you can be the most determined person and you can be sitting in the West, you know, writing and publishing articles, but it takes a different type of person to to take up arms and to do things that that are risky for them and for their family. So I think that's what I learned about Sally or or how I I think about her now. Um, I think there's certainly things that she did that I can relate to. There's also huge differences in our personality. Like I'm completely an an introvert. I'm not the life of any party. So (laughs) there's that difference. Um, I think I have the same sort of interest in political engagement um, that she did. But I think the paths I've taken to achieve some of those things or to achieve the social justice changes that interest me is more through through education and art. But I mean, it was interesting because in shooting the film and going back and finding people who knew Sally, a lot of people thought that I looked like her and I still don't 
see that or get that, but people would come up to me because they thought that I reminded them of her, which was a really sort of shocking experience or unexpected. Yeah, it is funny you say that, you know, because it actually was one of the things I meant to ask you because for me anyway, the story really came alive with the scene reconstructions and wanted to know, you know, were there sections you or an actor, I guess, was impersonating your aunt? Yeah. And I mean, most people don't realize that that's me. And the reason (laughs) and the reason that it was not intentional, it was not part of this idea of like making parallels between us. But it was really because we did a lot of like wild casting in Ethiopia. We went through agencies. We met with casting directors, which is, you know, even a very new business in the country. But because the type of body image and look that is valued within the advertising and and film and television industry in Ethiopia, we were getting really, really skinny women, Mm -hmm. usually with blonde hair because they were trying to fit this, you know, certain look. Mm -hmm. So nobody looked like Sally. Um, A lot of the extras we pulled were from the theater department in Adagrat University. Mm -hmm. And we worked with, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 of the students or the whole class and their teacher to play soldiers and people on scenes in a bus and other villagers in those recreations. But there was no one that could play Sally. So it was just sort of, I'm closer to the same size that Mm -hmm. she was and I can have my hair change so that it looks like how her where hair was so it was just a logistical thing really right um so the other question I had you know not that I know it was you is how did that really feel as you were playing your aunt um I don't think I was thinking of playing my aunt when I was doing it I think I was thinking of the types of shots I wanted and I think it's you know It's hard to direct something and be in the shot, which happened a lot in this film. And so that that was always what was in my mind. And I think the other thing I took away from that is I have a lot of respect for actors and I would have no interest ever in being an actor because it's just too much, too much retaking. Right. And just out of curiosity, how difficult was it to like obtain some of that historical footage? Yeah. So I think the, there is a lot of archival footage of Ethiopia in that period. There's two challenges with it. One majority of it, like many African archives, are held by European and North American agencies, and then it's expensive to get them from them. Uh, so there's a financial barrier that I think I know prevents a lot of Ethiopian filmmakers from even being able to work with that content. And then the other barrier is there's a lot of content held by the Ethiopian state broadcaster, mm-hmm. but they don't have the tools, the machinery, the financial resources to uh, take stuff that's on reels and clean it up and digitize it or even play back things um, that they have to know what they have or to keep things in the right sort of um, temperature and, and climate controlled rooms that would help to maintain these archives. So I think there's a great risk of losing a lot of what we have, but I was able to get most of the content in the film from the archives in Ethiopia, but there was so much more that I just couldn't even watch because of their facilities. Wow. That's so amazing. Just to recap on the main themes that were covered in this uh, documentary, it was really about belonging, right? Personal convictions 
And as you said earlier, those political ideals, you know, the fact that you went out there and despite, you know, any kind of, you know, differences in how you might be, you know, not as charismatic as Sally. For me anyway, watching it, what I took away was that there are different ways to achieving that political ideal if you really want to. There's ways to get there. And I think it's about voicing rather than staying quiet in the face of injustices. So how would you say, you know, Sally's story is overall like relatable to not just yourself, but others today? Well, I mean, I think there's two sides to that. One, I'm not the only person from a younger generation. I mean, I'm not that young now, I'm 40, but I think people my age and younger, there's so many people who don't know what happened to their relatives, what happened to their community during that period because of this culture of silence. So the film is helping to start up those conversations because a lot of the people who write to me and who post on social media write about, I'm now going to go and ask my father or my grandmother or my uncle about what happened in this period. Mm -hmm. So there's that, I think, inter-community family dialogue that's being started. But Mm -hmm. one of the other reasons I made the film was because I knew there was this culture of silence. And my grandmother said, Sally and her peers and what they stood for and their bravery is at risk of being lost. And you need to, to make this film so that young Ethiopians can be reminded to feel as brave as Sally and her peers were, but to feel, um, I guess, like a duty of care to the country to be engaged with creating a better future. I mean, this is something my grandmother said to me over 10 years ago. I don't think she could have even imagined what is happening in Ethiopia today, Um, you know, because 10 years ago, nobody protested anything or commented on anything. And that was the sort of spirit of hope and political engagement that she really wanted to have Sally's memory kickstart. Yeah, that's great. I just wanted to recap on what you'd said earlier about the music. It does make the documentary really beautiful. And how how important was that? You know, what kind of mood were you aiming for musically? I come from working in the music industry before moving into film. So music is always really important. And music is one of the things that, you know, you get into post-production and you need money for something else. And the music budget often suffers. And I really dug in my heels to keep as much of that money as possible because I had ideas from the beginning about the music in the film and, you know, how I was going to collaborate with the two musicians who who did the score, which is Zaki Ibrahim, a South African-Canadian musician and Abagasu Shiota, a Ethiopian arranger, producer, musician, sort of jack of many trades. And I felt it was important to to use Zaki to put Sally's voice into the film because we have no audio or, or video. We can't hear her otherwise. And to use her voice as an instrument and Abagas to really be there for the Ethiopian texture and sound and to make sure we were using Ethiopian instruments and to make sure we were using, you know, music of that time and period. So for me, that was super, super important as a layer uh, of how to tell the story. Okay, that makes sense. And just for the audience listening to us today, who's going to be a bit from all over the place, just so you know, um, where can we find the documentary? Like today, how can we access it? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on what territory you're in because the film is technically still in festival release. But because of COVID, it's already been aired by some broadcasters. So if you're in the U.S., the documentary can be accessed through uh, World Channel. It aired a few weeks ago and it is accessible, I believe, through their website and through their YouTube page. 
other parts of the world, the, the film is having broadcast releases over the next couple of months and also still in festivals. So the best thing to do really is to check findingsally.com. Mm-hmm. or um, any of our social media handles to to see when the next screenings are happening. Okay. And in terms of your future plans for Finding Sally, as well as, I guess, any other projects in your pipeline, your uh, company is GoBiz, and um, you're going to be focusing more on production, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I mean, I, I really focus on two things. One is equity and policy work in the screen sector, both um, in Canada and in, in Ethiopia. So I sit on a number of boards and do work in that space to try and make things easier um, for, for other people uh, coming after me. And then I also produce. So I work right now on a slate of films, primarily with Ethiopian writer directors. And that's really my focus to help export Ethiopian content and films told through an Ethiopian point of view to to the world stage. Great. And are you going to have any kind of um, African outlet, so to speak, in terms of screenings at all? Just because I know a lot of uh, the folks listening might be from the continent. Yeah, so the film played last year in the uh, Encounters in Durban Film Festivals in South Africa. It won an award for Best African Women-Directed Film at Encounters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also nominated for African Academy, I guess, an African Academy Award. Uh, I think that's the title. Um, there were some smaller festivals in other markets in Africa that were postponed because of COVID, so I don't know if they'll be rebooked and when that will happen. Um, And then we're also talking to broadcasters in Africa. The Ethiopian version actually should be coming out in the next couple of months. It's just been being dubbed into Amharic. Okay. And with COVID, things have been going really, really slowly with with everything, because it's really important for me to have the film accessible um, in Amharic because it is primarily English. Um, and then to also look at what other languages in Ethiopia are there communities that are interested in having the film dubbed into their languages so that it can be accessible and post COVID having screenings where community can come together and and talk about the film. Because right now, everyone who's been watching has been doing it, you know, in isolation in their house. Right. But still, even in isolation in my house, (laughs) I was moved, (laughs) You know, so I'm sure like the effect is even um, bigger. To be honest, it reminded me of a really old film. Um, I think it's called The Dirk itself. I think that was the actual title, if I'm not mistaken, but another documentary from a really long time ago. And I had seen that in Ethiopia at a screening. But to be honest, it's like your story was very unique. Um, It was unique in that, you know, you used a personal experience to really touch on really broad topics that are still relevant today. Um, At the same time, I think it's uh, from what I'm hearing from you, there are similar things to other experiences that filmmakers and documentary creators are finding across the continent in that a lot of them are tracing some of the issues in sort of that lack of communication between whether it's territorial, geographical or boundaries that inhibit that communication flow from gen- intergenerationally. And yeah, that once those barriers are kind of bolted down, because it takes a lot, there are just truths about ourselves and our belonging and our history that we have to learn from, as you say, in order to move forward, not just in a better way, but in a way that's sort of less harmful, <laughs> because I hear a lot of 
need for healing in our communities. Um, and in that healing, would you say that without talking about it, it's not really an effective way of moving on? Yeah, I think talking about things is always super important. And maybe that's my like Canadian lens of, you know, being taught in, in elementary school. I think when you have an issue or you have an emotion to go to the person and tell them when you do this, you make me feel like this. Um, that doesn't happen in Ethiopian culture, in many African cultures. But I also think that a lot of the bigger themes and ideas in the film can resonate with people from many cultures. Like, for example, the editor of Finding Sally is from Iran. And she, you know, experienced the revolution in Iran, which has many parallels to what happened in Ethiopia. And part of the reason she wanted to work on the film and that I wanted to work with her was because she understood the issues within someone when something like that happens to your country. She understood the duality of being between two places. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's it's important to remember that many of the themes have just impacted so many people from countries in the, the I guess, the so-called global south. Yeah, for sure. And, and it carries on today. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, I'm all in favor of you know, obviously talking about it. That's what this podcast is about. It's giving a voice to our stories. And I just want to thank you again for, you know, one, putting together such a wonderful documentary. Um, do you feel you can kind of comment on the current political situation in Ethiopia, in, even if it's through the lens of what happened in this specific period you you were outlining? I mean, I don't feel like I'm someone who, who should comment on what's going on other than it's really, really terrible um, because I'm not someone who, who can vote. And I think, you know, a lot of the, the issues right now are all, as much as they're ethnic divisions, it's also political divisions. And I hope that in, if not in this election, but in future elections, um, those can be ways through, through political processes to help deal with some of these things and discuss people's ideas and, and concerns. But that's me probably hoping and projecting the very Western point of view. But I think, you know, one of the Ethiopian directors I'm working with, he's also doing a film set in the Red Terror. It's a dramatic film. And he often says to me that, you know, Ethiopia is a country flying forward on the highway, driving in a car and never looking in the rearview mirror to see what's behind them. And to me, that's like one of the most important comments I've heard about Ethiopia probably ever, definitely in the last couple of months. Because I think that's exactly what's happened. If we don't understand where we're coming from and look back, we never know if we're going forward in a way that's productive and a way that's really setting us up for growth. Yeah, I've definitely heard that before. And I definitely value the importance of our history and learning from it. Um, I personally feel, you know, there's there's a double-edged sword to some of the kind of innate cultural ways that we have back in Ethiopia. And that is like being very clearly xenophobic. It's a double-edged sword in the sense that, you know, both, I think both South Africans and Ethiopians can come across that way, like more than other cultures in the continent. I know everyone's going to be like, what are you talking about? But I feel it's a double-edged sword. I feel for Ethiopia, it's what kept us uncolonized in, in a certain way. Just always being um, a little skeptical and kind of not untrusting and just not sharing. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's probably like a whole other series of podcasts. I mean, there's. I've always noticed that Ethiopians who have not gone abroad because there was no 
really colonial period don't have an experience with racism from white people. So that's like a huge shock when people travel. And even, you know, in the interviews with my aunts, when they moved to Canada, that was their first time being in a white country. And they, a lot of the experiences they had were completely shocking to them and unexpected because they weren't prepared for that. But I think, you know, on the same hand, um, I found out about some really racist things that my grandmother thought in her lifetime and that other people of her generation and people of my generation in Ethiopia today think. So there's many, many layers of things to to unpack. Yeah, absolutely. Many, many layers. So um, I am going to, I guess, round off here. And another one. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Pan-African Film Podcast. Yet another powerful story about us. And if you don't know, now you know. Right here on the podcast with Anna and Naz. The Pan-African Film Podcast is hosted by Anna Morano, development executive in the U.S., and her co-host is none other than Nazizi Herji, reggae artist in Nairobi. If you want to talk some more, we can be reached at annaheron at gmail.com. That's A-N-N-A-H-E-R-O-N at gmail.com. Last but not least, special shout out to our editor, Max Niota, and the whole Kenyan Vibe team.